Episode 30 of The Historians Begin. Our distinguished guest is Edward Larson. He's a professor at Pepperdine University, a Pulitzer Prize winner for a previous book. He was just telling me he's a graduate of Williams College over in uh, Williamstown. His new book is The Return of George Washington. The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789. Ed, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you for having me. You're at Mount Vernon, and you told me you spoke last night. Uh, that that must be exciting. Oh, it's a it's a delight. Yeah, I get to, I'm able to stay right on the grounds in what's known as the quarters, and so I can just get up and wander over and before the visitors come or after they leave and look out over the Potomac and sit on his uh, right on that large front uh, porch that he has there. And there's been a lot of interest uh, in your book, which is uh, published by William Morrow, The Return of George Washington. I mean, you would think, I mean, what else could, what could we write about Washington that hasn't been focused on? But you focus on uh, an interesting period in uh, George Washington's life. From 1783, when he resigned his uh, commission as commander of the Revolutionary Army, to 1789, when he became president, the first president of the the United States. I guess we always assume that he just sort of went back to Mount Vernon, where you are now, and just sort of hung out. But that was and was not true. He did go back to Mount Vernon, and you're very right there, there are a tremendous number of books on George Washington. I don't think there's probably any American who has more books written about him. But they tend to focus either on him as a general or as president. And there was, as you note, this five-year period in between where he does resign his commission at the end of the war, which itself was a very notable act at the time because the the tradition was and the fear was and the concern was that you're a, you're a rebel leader and you just then take power yourself and become a leader yourself. And he didn't do that. He turned it over to civilian rule and sincerely hoped he could stay in Mount Vernon and, and restore his plantation to profitability. It had been, it had been, uh, very much damaged by the war, uh, and by the war economy. But instead, during that period, since there was no effective central government and all the states basically could go on their own, um, they became virtually independent republics um, in your own area. New York and Connecticut and, and uh, New Jersey were constantly squabbling over the, the rights to use the, um, use the New York Harbor, and New York was charging tariffs on both Connecticut and New Jersey. And, and even closer to you, Vermont was uh, breaking off from New York and threatening to join with British Canada and leave the country altogether. Given that turmoil, and then added to the the debtors' uh, revolt in Massachusetts and the widespread printing of paper money causing hyperinflation in Rhode Island, it seemed like the entire Union was disintegrating and there was a great danger that America would lose its independence. Washington complained, and so did many others, such as Alexander Hamilton and John Jay from from New York State, that um, the United States was becoming the laughing stock of, of of Europe, and showing once again that a Republican rule couldn't couldn't work, and monarchies were the best system. And so Washington, reluctantly, at the urging of people like Jay and Hamilton, came out of retirement and 
helped to organize the Constitutional Convention, then led it, and then uh, led the fight for ratification. And if we, if we go over that, that ground again, we can go back to the very beginning, the, the impact of his resignation as a commander of the armies. I, I gather from your, your book that this uh, was uh, you know, a popular mover, or they were, I don't know if the word is astounded, but people in England uh, that they, who had fought Washington uh, were really impressed with that because there was such a, a tradition of military leaders who go on to run countries like in England, Oliver Cromwell. But it seemed that, uh, you know, uh, George Washington uh, said, no, I'm, I'm going home now. Well, during the revolution, the British propagandist in America, uh, which, of course, was based right in New York City, which was a British-occupied city for most of the war, was would taunt the Americans and say, why are you revolting against one King George, King George III, simply to get another in in uh, George Washington? And they would point to people like Oliver Cromwell. But Washington always said he would retire at the end of the war. And and when King George, who was, uh, who was talking to an expatriate American in England, a painter, um, asked him, what do you think Washington will do at the end of the war? He said that Washington would retire, and, and King George said, well, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man in the world. And that was the sense of, 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 of really being astounded in Europe. And in America, people also were impressed. They expected it because he'd always said he would retire. But it was almost equal, or, or maybe even equal, with the victory at Yorktown where Washington's great victory that, that sort of sealed the fate of the revolution, that he stepped down, that raised him very much in the public esteem. He became known thereafter as Cincinnatius, or compared with the, the, the Roman general who was called out of retirement twice to save Rome and then went back to his farm. And that's why... The society that honors Washington and the officers is the Cincinnati Society to this day. So it was a major event in America, and it it it's what it's why, in large part, that the people trusted Washington. Mm-hmm. They trusted him with power later because he'd been willing to give it up before. And that's what maybe is hard for uh, us, or maybe I'm saying for me to accept. You know that that he really, really, really was just going there to re- retire. And it seems, I mean, that's what you ultimately conclude looking at the record, is it not? I mean, it wasn't that he figured this was the best way, uh, you know, to come back with full glory and become the head of the country. He seemed to genuinely love Mount Vernon. He, he liked to farm. He was a, he, he, it was a, it was a wealthy plantation. It had fallen into um, hard times during the war. Uh, his leadership was needed to restore it to profitability, but it had tremendous potential. He had large frontier land holdings. It was a comfortable place to live. Uh, the United States wasn't much, didn't really have any office that would tempt him anyway because the Confederation was so weak. So in all those ways, he seems genuinely to have wanted to go home. Remember, he was, by the victory in the Revolutionary War, this rebel band in often the frontier, defeating the most powerful country in the world, he was probably the most famous man in the world. He had his reputation secure, and reputation mattered quite a bit to him. His, he, he, he 
he had the potential of being one of the wealthiest people in America with his plantation if it was working well. When you add all those things together, why would you really want to to risk all that fame and glory for um, an uncertain political career when he could go back home to his established plantation? So it made sense that he wanted to go home, and he genuinely he genuinely enjoyed his his life on the plantation. It was a he, he had friends, he had family, uh, and he loved to to dabble in different new ways to make the farm more profitable, new forms of crop rotation, or new ways, new t- uh, strains of, of cattle, um, or, or bringing in and uh, developing mules. He, he liked that life, and that's genuinely what he wanted to do. Hmm. And uh, an aside on, on slavery, he was a, a slave owner, and uh, was, but, but when he died, did he not free his slaves? Yes, his own slaves. Um, slavery is a is a is a very tricky issue with Washington. Um, people often ask me, "How can he be a leader for freedom and still own his slaves?" And the short answer to that question, I believe, is that he was a a man of his times. That he was shaped by his environment. He had grown up with slaves. He had inherited. These hundreds of slaves on the on the on the plantation. When he married Martha, she brought. She was very wealthy. She was a wealthy widow, and she brought even more slaves to the plantation. And they were the basis of his economy. Now there were there were many revolutionary leaders like the Pinckneys of South Carolina or Patrick Henry, who who actively supported slavery and thought, and indeed, you could argue they fought the revolution in part to protect their rights to own slaves because they figured Britain was going to take them away. Washington was more conflicted, and he was pushed by his lieutenants like Lafayette and Hamilton and Henry Lawrence that slavery is wrong, and you should set an example by freeing your slaves and speaking out against slavery. He wouldn't go that far. He never did during his lifetime. And he didn't even say what was in his will. But on his deathbed, he had two wills, and he tore up one and handed the other one over uh, and said this this will should be followed. And that one provided that his slaves would be free on his wife's death. And by that act, I think he was saying something. He knew that his stands on slavery, on that issue, he'd been on the wrong side of history, and he was trying to say a message. Now, that's my speculation, but none of the other revolutionary leaders or none of the other major ones, not Patrick Henry, not the Pinckneys, not Jefferson, not Madison, none of them, John Marshall, they didn't free their slaves at their their death. So he was trying to say something by that. Edward Larson with us, his book, The Return of George Washington, the period of uh, Washington's life from 1783 when he resigned from the military to 1789 when he became the first president of the United States. Now, if he's down in uh, Mount Vernon, you know, he didn't have Twitter and, uh, all, and all that. How did he stay in touch with events, or did he stay in touch with these events in which you started to talk about the, uh, the, the kind of the disintegration of the fledgling American Republic? Washington stayed in very close contact with what was happening around the United States. There was a very active press in the United States, 
and Washington took dozens of newspapers. They came in to him. He, he had free postal service to him. It was one of the perks, I suppose, of having been a commander-in-chief. And he had a flood of newspapers coming in, which he would read. Also, he had a tremendously active correspondence. He was writing letters all the time and receiving letters all the time from throughout the states. He had many correspondents in Massachusetts. He had many in New York. He was very close to the governor of New York, Governor Clinton. He was um, John Jay and and Hamilton kept up a regular correspondence. Jay's was probably the the most active from from New York State. He had correspondence in New Jersey and New Hampshire and and Massachusetts and the Carolinas. And also many of these people visited him in Mount Vernon. His, his in the, I like the story that in the 1790s, he writes a note um, um, that um, if, unless, he actually uses this phrase, unless somebody pops up unexpectedly by dinner time, uh-huh. Martha and I will do something tonight that we haven't done for over 20 years, and that is have dinner alone at home. That is, that he had had visitors so constantly that uh, th- these people were constantly coming down and visit. So between the correspondence, between the newspapers, and between these visitors, he kept in very close touch with what was happening around the country. It seems to me that um, he was on the way to doing what he would ultimately do, lead the country, when he agreed to uh, attend the convention where the Constitution was drawn up. Do you think so, or what, what do you think? I think so. Can't necessarily prove it, but it, he was very reluctant to go to Philadelphia. And every indication is that he knew if he went to Philadelphia and to, to the Constitutional Convention, which he knew he'd be elected as the president of it and he'd preside over it. And if he took that, he knew that he couldn't then step back, that he would then have to stay. And if the Constitution, if the convention proceeded to create a new constitution, and he was committed already before he went, he w- he wasn't going to go if it was just going to do some tinkering and revising the Articles of Confederation. We know from his letters that he would only go if, to use his phrase, they could make radical cures, that is, create an essentially a new government. And he had outlined from his correspondence with Jay and Knox and Madison, he had outlined a new uh, plan for government, which then is materializes in the Virginia plan, which is debated and then materializes in the Constitution. And he knew that if he went, he would have to see it through and at least get the government started as the first, first uh, executive, if they had a strong executive. Because he doesn't ever exhibit the same reluctance to be president. He never denies that he'll accept the job. And many people wrote him and said, if the people don't think you're going to be the first president, they will not ratify the convention, the Constitution. And in state after state after state, it was clear in the ratifying conventions that these states were ratifying the Constitution, which there was quite a bit of opposition to, on the assumption that Washington would then become president and would lead it and properly form it. So he never denies that, and he never goes through this Hamlet-like, 
to go or not to go that he do, ha, that he goes through in his writings and his private co- uh, communications mm-hmm. before the uh, constitutional convention that never happens before the the, the presidency. Mm. Would you say that Alexander Hamilton was his closest advisor? Alexander Hamilton became his closest advisor midway through his first term as president. Hamilton had been his aide during the revolution, but there was a true break break between those two men. And it happened around the Newburgh conspiracy, uh, when which happened in Newburgh, New York, just south of where you are, um, when the troops threatened to mutiny for their back pay, and Hamilton seemed to be in league with that whole activity. And Washington had to step forward and basically stare it down. And then there was a coldness between Washington and Hamilton that only gradually died away. Uh, I think Washington always deeply respected Hamilton's intelligence, but he, I think he was he knew that or he at least had a sense, and you can see in his writings, actually to Hamilton, accusing him of this, that Hamilton was willing to use any means to get his ends. And Washington wasn't quite like that. But yet, when Robert Morris turned down the job of the Treasury Secretary, and he then turned to Hamilton as his second choice, then you see gradually he becomes to rely more and more on Hamilton, and Hamilton displaces James Madison as his closest advisor sort of midway through the first term and then remains his his closest confidant in a political sense uh, really through the end of his life. Uh, something different. Uh, when he's uh, living at uh, Mount Vernon, at some point he goes to the West to try to get some lands back, uh, and can you tell us that story? Oh, that's a it's it's a tremendous story just for the adventure of it because Washington is is in his fifties. He's retired. He's the most famous person in America. He's retired from being general. He's won the won the revolution. But in a, as a kid, remember Washington, and when he was young. Um, Washington was a frontier surveyor, and he'd gone over the frontier surveying it for the Fairfaxes, and then that was before he'd inherited Mount Vernon, before his, his half-brother died. Um, and then he goes back to the frontier as a colonel in the Virginia militia during the uh, what we know as the French and Indian Wars. So he was very familiar with the Ohio Valley, as it were, um, what's now western Pennsylvania, uh, and on down into what's now Western Virginia, but was then part of Virginia. And he had acquired lands there before the Revolution, significant amounts of land and in the Ohio country, and he believed that was his, uh, I mean, he had tremendous amounts of investments, of course, in around uh, Mount Vernon. He also had investments with Governor Clinton up in New York State, and those were his most profitable lands actually he ever had, the ones up near you. Mm. But in the Ohio Valley, he had large holdings, and after the Revolution, he really didn't know the status of those, so he takes this trip out there, which is a grand trip out, um, with, uh, with these large tents and uh, other um, friends and um, servants, and they go out, and when they get to these territories, 
not too bad before they crossed the Appalachians, and there the, the settlers on his land there were, you know, tried to pay him what they could and sort of kowtowed to him. But he gets across the mountains, and these settlers really, these squatters on his land have, have, um, know who he is, but, um, they say, no, we squatted here. This is our land. And he says, no, I had, I had acquired it by a, by a, um, a, a, a grant before the revolution. He says, no, we squatted it. And they had no intention of leaving. And they showed him no respect whatsoever. And then when he tried to get his, to his furthest lands, um, he was warned that the Native Americans were in an uproar down there, and they were plotting to capture him if he came down there and hold him ransom, or worse. And his agent, uh, it's not a, uh, his agent a year before, his land agent in that territory had been captured by the Native Americans and taken back across the Ohio River and, and killed. And so Washington um, at first tries to get military troops to take him down to his land, but his largest uh, area of land, but finally decides it's not worth the risk. <laughs> so instead of going back with the rest of his company, he decides to really explore the unexplored part of of a little further south through Virginia, Western Virginia and Virginia, because he wants to put in a navigation system mm-hmm. across the Potomac to bring to connect the east with the west and help unite the frontier, because he by now thinks... America's going to lose the frontier. They're going to they're going to um, side because it's so hard to get across the mountains. They're either going to side with British Canada to get their goods up through the New uh, St. Lawrence, or go down the Ohio to Spanish New Orleans and side with the the Spanish. And of course, the British hadn't evacuated their forts out there. So he's trying to figure: can we work a canal across or a, or a navigation system across the mountains? And so he goes off on his own. Um, on his horse, on his great horse, through the through the wilderness, occasionally finding a frontier home to stay in, uh, sometimes just sleeping out in the in the woods. And it's a very rainy trip back, so he's getting rained on. He doesn't even have a tent; he just lies up in a blanket. Um, but he'll knock on doors, and he recounts the um, encounter and some of the frontiersman, he knocks on the door and suddenly they open the door and they're in the middle of the wilderness and there's George Washington at the door and they don't have any food or any place to put him up. So it's a tremendous story that I get to retell in my book. Well, Edward Larson, we're just out of time, but there are many stories in uh, the new book, The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789 by Pulitzer Prize winner uh, Edward Larson book published by William Morrow. Thank you very much uh, for joining us, and best of luck with your book tour. Well, thank you for your kindness. I enjoyed being on the show.